0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Bowery Boys, episode 96, The Cloisters and Fort Tryon Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, bustling around the week before the holidays, getting stuff done. But I just wanted to slip in one more solo show for the year. Today we're going arguably to one of the luscious, loveliest areas of Manhattan, in my opinion. The very north of the island to a place called Fort Tryon Park, and to the adjoining museum called the Cloisters. The Cloisters is an outpost of the Metropolitan Museum of Art that specializes in medieval European treasures filled with amazing examples of middle Age paintings, reliquary, tapestries, and tombs. But almost as amazing as the objects contained within the museum is the actual museum itself. Its walls, corridors, and apses actually cobbled together from various European holy sites and cloisters. This place is incredible. It's one of my personal favorites in the entire city. You have all these echoey chambers, dimly lit corridors, stairwells down into rooms with stained glass and mysterious golden objects behind glass. It's kind of a place that if you look hard enough, I'll bet you'll find some hidden secret passageways or a mysterious book of magic spells or probably just a magical choir going in and out of some of the doorways downstairs. Certain parts of the Cloister Museum are among the oldest man-made structures that are standing in the United States. Although, of course, they weren't made here, they were brought over, stone by stone, an incredibly ambitious, very ubiquitous structure that could only be the pet project of one of the richest New Yorkers who ever lived, J.D. Rockefeller Jr., But before we get to the story of the Cloisters, I have to dwell here on the area itself for the moment because its history traces all the way back to the Revolutionary War. As a series of bluffs overlooking the Hudson and the surrounding land, this area of Upper Manhattan was naturally very important strategically during the war. The Continental Army actually built several forts here along the Hudson, most notably Fort Washington, which was situated just south of this region around the area of the George Washington Bridge today. An additional smaller fort was constructed slightly north, but it wasn't called Fort Tryon until the British forced out the Continental Army out of Manhattan in 1776 and then renamed that rebel fort after their provincial governor, Sir William Tryon. I should mention quickly that this area today pays tribute to one of the great unsung heroines of the Revolutionary War, a woman by the name of Margaret Corbin. Corbin was defending Fort Tryon alongside her husband John, operating a cannon and doing their best to turn back the British and Hessian forces that were attacking here. Her husband was then tragically struck and killed, so then Margaret took to the cannon herself, bending against the enemy even as she herself was struck with bullets to the jaw, the arm, and the chest. She was then taken prisoner but then later released, and much later she would become the first woman to receive a military pension from the new U.S. government. Today, the entrance of Fort Tryon Park and the entrance to the cloisters is named in honor of Margaret Corbin, meaning we have a park here named after a British governor and the road leading up to it named for a woman who, in essence, tried to defeat him. Now, flash forward many, many, many years later, with the threats of war long gone, late 19th century here, this lush elevation became a natural respite from millionaires. Private estates scattered up the side of the island, even as the interior of the island itself was becoming really developed and paved with avenues. Some of the mansions on this upper Manhattan real estate were owned by some famous names, some people you may have heard of, for instance, Boss Tweed owned a place here. So did the department store King A.T. Stewart, also had a very tony place up here. But the one that sat on this particular land, the land that would become the future Fort Tryon Park, well, this was owned by a wealthy Chicago industrialist and a horse breeder with the treacherous name of Cornelius Kingsley Garrison Billings. Now, Mr. Billings would name his $2 million estate that sat here, he would name it Tryon Hall after the old fort. Built in 1907 and rising high over the Hudson River, the mansion had horse stables, a rustic winding driveway up the hill, swimming pool, and room for 23 servants. Now, making sure to remind people of the historical import of the area, Billings helped lobby for and then received a large bronze plaque that's adhered to the East Rock face of the estate, proclaiming the historical credentials of the area, a plaque that's in fact still there today. It was placed there in 1909. Billings, however, was not long for the place at all. He eventually sold the home in 1917, Sold it to perhaps the only person wealthy enough to gobble up estates up and down the Manhattan shoreline were of course to the world's most fabulously unnaturally wealthy person, John D. Rockefeller Jr. Jr. was not interested in Tryon Hall as a home, In fact, the home actually burnt down in 1925 and was never rebuilt, although you can see the home's foundations if you visit the park today. Rockefeller was interested in the entire area, fondly remembering this place for the horse rides that he and his father, J.D. Sr., would take here. Junior had grander objectives for the whole place, to buy a property and then donate all of that newly landscaped area as a city park. J.D. was a full-time philanthropist by this time, and he was so interested in preserving this last remaining area of natural greenery in untouched view along the Hudson that he actually bought up 700 acres across the Hudson River outside the city and into New Jersey in what is today Palisades Park. So if you ever wondered why it's so curiously lush around that area of New Jersey, now you know. However, it would be one of the neighboring property owners who would lure Rockefeller into building a Cloisters Museum at all. And so here I'd like to introduce you to the eccentric inspiration for the Cloisters Museum, the sculptor and art collector George Gray Barnard, a Midwestern boy raised in Illinois. Barnard trained in Chicago and then later notably attended Parisian art school, the École des Beaux-Arts fount from which so many of the world's greatest artists and architects have sprung. On top of these massive Rodin-esque type sculptures that he would create, including some that would actually be displayed at the Metropolitan Museum, Bernard was also a lover of medieval arts, an active lover, we would actually say, because he ventured to France in 1906 and began wandering through small villages, buying or handpicking objects from churches and monasteries, and even buying carvings and statues and stones from the places themselves, This wasn't entirely for his own benefit. Many of his finds were making their way back to wealthy American art lovers and museums. And we're not just talking like a gargoyle here and there. Bernard had acquired the arches and accoutrements of entire cloisters, including the archways and rose stone pillars of the French abbey saint michel de Coucha, quote, pillars unsurpassed in France. According to a 1913 New York Times article, quote, there probably do not exist in France any more characteristic medieval sculpture than those of the saint michel du Kusha Structures literally left upon a hilltop ruin where, quote, wolves descend from the mountain at night and vie with the mistral and howling about the broken walls, unquote. So in essence, yes, this was the real thing. And so, obviously. This may come as no surprise, but the French government was not really crazy for their treasures to be sort of carted out of France. So in 1913, Bernard protested and then managed to get the kusha artifacts out of the country, but by the next year, 1914, the French got wise to the whole scheme and passed a law banning any further imports of their medieval architecture. So these objects were shipped back to Bernard's home, which, by the way, the location of his home is coincidental for the story because it was in Manhattan at 191st Street and Fort Washington. In fact, just a few steps away from the Billings Mansion in the future Fort Tryon Park. In December of 1914, Bernard opened his Cloisters Museum at this very address, which would highlight some of his own acquisitions, including the parts of that cloister from the Michelle de Coucha, as well as other cloister fragments from three other French monasteries, the names of which I'm not going to read you. I'll have to put them on the blog because I've already butchered enough French names so far, wouldn't you say? So. Soon after the opening of his Cloisters Museum, he met another budding medieval art fanatic, one with a lot more pocket change to pick up some of these trinkets. Of course, that's J.D. Rockefeller Jr., who became quite enamored of Barnard, actually, not just of the medieval things, but of his actual artistic talent. Jr. commissioned Barnard to make a sculpture for Kaikitt, his estate that's up near Terrytown and Sleepy Hollow, and Barnard planted in Junior an idea for an even more spectacular cloister museum. It was with this plan in mind, in fact, that Junior began his purchases of the Billings Manor and the other upper Manhattan estates in 1917 for this future park. Now, amongst the properties that Junior purchased was, of course, eventually Barnard's own home, Although both he and his rudimentary Cloisters Gallery were allowed to remain here for now, he actually spent many years working on Junior's commission for Junior's estate. But Bernard was distracted by an even greater project he wished to present to Rockefeller, a massive rainbow arch something I assume kind of similar to the Arc de Triomphe, perhaps. A monument to peace, 100 feet tall and covered with almost 400 nude sculptures. Barnard would work on and off on this dream project for the rest of his life and hope that Junior would desire to put this monstrous piece of sculpture on his newly purchased property. As we know, that never happened. That would be a pretty spectacular thing and pretty hard to miss. In fact, Fort Tryon Park itself almost didn't happen. Rockefeller bought up all these properties, all these emptied estates of various millionaires and then offered the whole package to the city as a public park. The city rejected it. In fact, they kept rejecting it for years. This is pretty weird, right? I think part of it has to do with just the finances. The city could ill afford to landscape and maintain this massive area at this particular time. In fact, it would take well over 10 years for the city to finally accept this gift. But by then, there was not really that much work to do on it. Because by that time, Rockefeller had already developed the park himself. He hired no less than famed scenic designer, Frederick Law Olmsted but that would be Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., the son of the park-designing icon who helped create Central and Prospect parks. The Olmsted brothers, Frederick Jr. and stepbrother John Charles Olmsted, they had their own firm, and they completed the park in May of 1930. Mayor at the time, Jimmy Walker, he finally accepted the present on behalf of the city in 1931. By that day, 1931, plans were in store for a fabulous, exotic structure to be built right next to the park, something that would draw thousands to this far north Manhattan destination. And so here's how the Cloisters Museum finally came to be. In 1925, Bernard, needing money to complete his arch and to pay for some back taxes, offered his Cloisters Museum on 191st Street to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They initially balked at the price of the museum initially until Rockefeller, who also happened to be one of the Met's most generous contributors, swept in on June 1925 with a massive and, to the public at least, anonymous gift to the Met specifically for the purpose of buying Barnard's cloister collection. With one very important condition, it had to move off the Barnard property and closer to the old Billings property. By 1926, Barnard's collection officially reopened as a branch museum of the Metropolitan Museum, but plans were soon underway for a new home which would incorporate the actual pieces of Barnard's cloisters as part of the structure of the building, as well as many of Rockefeller's own gothic possessions. Rockefeller's architect was Charles Collins, the architect of another Rockefeller project, Riverside Church. And in 1933, work began on both moving the delicate structures of the original museum and refitting it all into a brand new grand structure on Rockefeller's property. As with Rockefeller Center, which was being built at the exact same time downtown, the Cloisters Project helped create construction jobs during one of the worst financial periods in American history. Radio City Music Hall was enjoying its very first year of operation the same year that the Cloisters began construction. Interestingly, one reason why the Cloisters had so many older pieces incorporated into the building's architecture was that it was actually cheaper to do this than building brand new, gothic-inspired arches and doorways. So really, part of the authenticity of the Cloisters essentially comes from the penny-pinching of the Great Depression. An attempt by Rockefeller to bring over an entire chapel from France, the 15th century Chapel of St. Hubert, that failed when the French government fought back and prevented the sale to Rockefeller. However, the Rockefellers would give the new museum perhaps something more extraordinary, the famed unicorn tapestries, seven medieval wall hangings of unknown origin dating from the 15th century that depict all these noblemen on a hunting party in pursuit of a mythical unicorn. The Rockefellers, being fabulously wealthy, bought these tapestries in 1922 and had them hanging around their home as we all have tapestries hanging around our homes. Eventually, J.D. donated these to the Met and they would eventually be added to the Cloisters collection and today are probably the most famous objects in the entire Cloisters Museum. The new Cloisters was grandly opened in May 10, 1938. Unfortunately, one person who was not there was George Grey Barnard, who died three weeks earlier of a heart attack while working on a sculpture of Cain and Abel. His dream of his masterpiece, the Rainbow Arch, never realized anywhere. I should mention briefly the Cloisters' very first curator, James Rorimer, who had actually helped work with Rockefeller in acquiring the Unicorn Tapestries and many other finds in the first place. I'm just going to throw this out there. I think Roemer might be the closest real life will ever get to an actual Indiana Jones. Although Roemer didn't swing around on a whip, during World War II, he enlisted and eventually served as an officer in the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section, essentially gathering intelligence of the location of stolen Nazi art collections, working closely with French spies, cracking into German salt mines, apprehending Nazi train cars. You get the picture. So did he finding millions of dollars of priceless art treasures in the process. As a reminder of these hard-fought and buried treasury glamorous war years, Romer would famously wear his army boots everywhere to work and even with tuxedos at black tie met functions. One treasure Romer had in mind for the cloisters was as ambitious as any already incorporated into the museum already, a 12th century Romanesque Spanish apse or a semi-domed vault, which Romer would obtain as a permanent loan from the Spanish government and ship back to the United States stone by stone. This apse, made of stones weighing 600,000 pounds, would be painfully reconstructed and eventually debuted for the public in 1961. Most would actually consider this to be the capstone on completing the beauty of the Cloisters. Unfortunately, the Cloisters' prime benefactor by this time, by 1961, J.D. Rockefeller, had died the year before and so would never really see it as a complete part of the museum. Roemer, by this time, though, would become director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art proper. And when he died in 1966, his memorial service would be held here at the Cloisters Museum, the building that he and many of the other lovers of Gothic architecture that I've mentioned helped to create for New Yorkers. Today, you can visit the Cloisters any time of year. They have these beautiful gardens during the spring and summer. And, of course, all that sunshine pouring through the museum's mini stained glass windows But I actually prefer going during the fall and winter months because it just, I don't know, seems more appropriate to me for some reason. And they also do a lot of things around the holidays, so keep that in mind for next year. You can check out the Closer's website for more information, visiting times, and certain exhibits that are going on. And you can check out our website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for some more information and some photographs, including some from a trip that I made just a couple weeks ago. The Cloisters is a custom-made place for all you budding photographers out there. So go there, have fun, enjoy it, sing a Gregorian chant, do whatever medieval activity possesses you. Thank you very much for listening. This is the last show of 2009. Uh, We will be taking a month off. So the next show will be at the end of January, four weeks from now. On behalf of Tom, I would like to thank everyone so much for the support that you've given us this past year. I hope everyone has a safe and happy new year. And as always, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.